Discover community, find hope, and experience God. This is Discovering Hope with Pastor Paul Knight. Ephesians chapter 2 begins with this statement. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sin. That, that we know that, that if left in our sinfulness, that, we, that we're screwed. Like, like there's nothing in us that can fix that. There's nothing, a part of us that can make it better. That we can't work hard enough. That we can't be good enough. That we can't be perfect enough. That we can't strive long enough to fix that. The, the d- dead people don't repair themselves. That's just like the essence of death. And, and the scriptures speak of spiritual death. But then it goes on to say, in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, this is like the turning point, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, in the time to come, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. For it's by grace you've been saved. Through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift. A gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. Grace. Scandalously beautiful. The first point that I want to make this morning is the beauty of grace. I'm going to tell you, we, we look at grace in, in two kinds of ways. We look at grace in a physical and material sense, and we look at grace in, in a spiritual and theological sense. This physical and material sense, it's, it's grace like, like elegance, like a ballerina, like, like beautiful movement, like, like the experience I had when I, I was in uh, graduate school and I, I got invited to stay at someone's home on the north side of San Francisco on the ocean. It was a beautiful, gorgeous, unbelievable home uh, owned by a, a tech guy who we never met. I just slept in the garage, literally. But the garage was like stunning. It was, it was gorgeous, right? But in his, he had one of those swimming pools that, that stretched across his front yard and then disappeared over the edge down the cliff into a pool another thing there that he sucked the water back up and you could see the pool and then the ocean you know like the kind you see in the magazines and I'm like but in the most beautiful thing the most beautiful thing was in his yard he had this pond with two swans the water was like glass and the swans were just swimming around it was a picture of grace beauty which is not so different than the theological understanding of the word. The theological understanding of the word or the spiritual understanding of the word, grace is unmerited favor. Favor that's undeserved. The extension of God's beauty, the extension of God's love, the extension of God's forgiveness, the extension of God's mercy, the extension of who God is poured on somebody, grace that you would look at and say, well, that person or I myself, 
don't deserve that. And it's like, yes, 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 that is what grace is. You have never been good enough. You have never been perfect enough. You have never been the expression of beauty enough to earn it or deserve it. But God gives it. And and it's a part of who he is. I learned grace as unmerited favor, undeserved favor. I learned that God's riches, G for God, R for R, God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. That all of who God, that in the spiritual realms, that you have everything you need, all the blessings of heaven available to you by God's grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, his embrace, his acceptance. A gracious person is a person whose behavior depicts beauty. Or their behavior depicts undeserved favor towards the people around them. A gracious person is a person whose words communicate beauty or communicate undeserved favor to the people who hear them. A gracious person is a person whose thoughts would communicate beauty or undeserved favor toward the people that they think about. The beauty of grace, it's scandalous. It, we, we, we refer to common grace. Common grace is that grace like, like everybody gets, right? The, the way God set up the world, that the sun shines on the good and the evil. The rain falls on the good and the evil. In this part of the country, it gets 30 below for the good and evil, right? It, it's just like, it, it's God's common grace. We have the grace of God that enables us to experience things, to do things. We have the grace of God that allows us to experience salvation, love, And forgiveness, we have the grace of God that empowers you with spiritual gifts or special abilities when you become a follower of Jesus Christ. That's God's grace, his empowering in you to do the kinds of things he dreams of you doing. We have grace that is in his church. The grace expressed by his people. I, I, I loved watching our Christmas Eve dinner. And that grace expressed in the servants, the people who helped prepare the dinner, who were like they may have felt like they were just doing the thing they normally do. And, and yet somehow God was infusing that with a beauty. God infuses that with a favor. The ability to organize and to take care of like almost like a spiritual gift and then to serve and then the people who were greeting and loving the people who came and each other. Not like they were them and we were us but us serving and eating, and all of us together, God's grace being manifested in his church and through his church. I love it when I watch the people who work at the child care center love the little kids. Like, like that's one of my best parts of the week is those little kids running around unconscious of the reality that they live in this whacked and wicked world. They're just having a blast and singing and screaming down the hall, Pastor Paul, Pastor Paul, and then I go, boop, and I'm, they, the teachers get them all nice and quiet and then I disrupt everything in the name of Jesus an act of grace because the teachers there they're loving those kids I love what I hear about the care center 
Right, the expression of God's grace through his church where there's unmerited, undeserved favor being extended to, to the workers, to the, to the clients, to the people who come where there's, where there's prayer for the people who are workers and, and clients and all of the pieces of the church where God has infused it with himself. It's, it's this grace, this, this grace that God pours on us is beautiful. It may be the most powerful force on the face of the earth next to love. We tend to think political influence is powerful. We tend to think if we could just get the right laws in place that that's powerful. We tend to think that there's all of these other things. And really when you look at scripture, the most powerful thing is God's love and his grace. And it's transforming. It's life transforming. Like in the murderer, the religious terrorist, the apostle Paul, who was a recipient of grace. He didn't deserve forgiveness. He didn't deserve Jesus. And yet God grabs hold of him and transforms his life and then uses his life to transform all kinds of other things. Grace is scandalously beautiful. The people around the apostle Paul before he became the apostle, when he was just Saul, they were terrified of him. Matter of fact, when they heard that he'd come to Christ, they like, wait a minute. You want us to bring the murderer, the terrorist, the guy who's destroying people's lives? You want us to bring him into the house? study scripture with him and sing songs with him? Sure, I'll do that with one eye open and a gun loaded. But grace, the beauty of it, the amazingness of it, like John Newton, the author of the song Amazing Grace, slave trader. Imagine today, slave trader, comes to Christ, writes a song of that experience, but his past is unforgivable. He, he writes this line, "'Twas grace that caused my heart to fear." Grace caused my heart to fear. Grace, grace. The privilege of being aware of our undeserving nature is like a gift. It's an act of grace to realize that my sinfulness actually, like I don't think the Apostle Paul like, had any trouble recognizing that. Like he killed people. I don't think he had trouble recognizing that his sinfulness, that he was, he was not deserving of forgiveness. I don't think John Newton, the slave trader, had a problem thinking through the idea of whether he should be forgiven or not. I think he just understood, I don't deserve this. And, it, and the idea of being left in a sin quickened a fear in him when he began to realize how sinful he was. And, and it says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Then when God poured his grace on me, he writes, I was, like, I, I, I was quickened by fear, a reverential acknowledgement of God's holiness. It, it says in, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let me just ask a quick question. When we think about grace and the unmerited, undeserved favor, when was the last time you actually were fearful about your sinfulness? Maybe we don't acknowledge grace as much because we've lost track of how undeserving we are. I can think of several times in the past where 
where I've been so gripped. I, I think one time in, in, in college, my head on the floor at a church, weeping. At the awfulness of who I am. And the beauty of when you acknowledge that and say, God, I I got nothing to offer you. And he doesn't say, well, doggone it, that's the last time you're forgiven. I'm so grateful that he doesn't do it. We're done. I'm so grateful God doesn't say, okay, you've asked this seven other times. No, no, no. Out. The beauty. The beauty of grace. Let me, let me ask specifically those of us who are followers of Jesus. Are you ever shocked lately or humbled by how sinful you still are? Like now that you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you're like three years into walking with the Lord or or five years in walking with the Lord, or, or 15 years, or, or 30 years. Are you shocked ever by the things that you still do? By the things that you still think? By the things you still type? By the things you still say? After so many years? Let me just name some things. Are you shocked by how you treat people? In your home? Or at work? Or on the road? Are you shocked by how you speak? Or how you think? about how spiritually slothful you are? About how prideful you are? Or judgmental you are? Maybe some of these don't fit you, but just in your mind, circle the ones that you think, oh my goodness, yes. How cold-hearted or apathetic toward the poor or the greedy the envious about how lustful you are or unfaithful you are or deceitful you are? Are you stunned still by how much of a promise breaker you are? Or how secretly cruel you are in your mind or thoughts? Or cowardly? Or stubborn? or self-centered or joyless or how much of a complainer you are or how truly loveless you are Do you ever allow yourself to get a fresh glimpse 
of how beautiful his grace is that you have never deserved, that I have never deserved. The unmerited nature of it, that that he pours it on us, this scandalous, beautiful grace. That he doesn't treat us, as Psalm 103 says, 103 verse 10, he says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That he looks at us and says, you're my children. I love you with an everlasting love. Yes, yes, I see it. Yes, it hurts. But I will again forgive you. I will again love you. Sometimes humanity and the church struggles with this grace because it is, it is in fact extended to people that we would look at and say, but, but even though I'm undeserving, they're like really undeserving. Like it's like we measure the undeservingness and we, some of us come up with, yes, yes, we need to be gracious towards people, but, but those people, those, those people, the, 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 that humanity looks at and says, how could church people say that could be forgiven? Or church people say, how can we say that we would invite that kind of sinner into our presence? That, that it's, that, the scandalous grace it looks, it looks from the surface at, at a glance, it looks like, oh my goodness, that's wrong. How can you say that they will be forgiven? How can you say we should brush that under the rug? How, how can you extend favor to her? The scandal of grace. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich, in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. It is by grace you've been saved. I, I was listening to the news this past week about the verdict of Ghislaine Maxwell, who was Jeffrey Epstein's partner in capturing or wooing or luring young girls into doing sexual favors for wealthy and famous people. The kind of sinfulness that would make your skin crawl, especially if you're a person who's been a victim of that. Or especially if you're the parent of a person who's been a victim of that. Like you have stuff that wells up inside you. Maybe like this commentator who said these words. This will never go away for her now either. It is the rest of her life It is prison. With any luck, I hope she rots in jail. And then after that, she can rot in hell. Evil does not have a definitive face. You don't do things to young girls and get a second chance, in my opinion. You have committed crimes that are, in a sense, unforgivable in my world. So I am glad there is a guilty verdict. Here's the scandal of grace. God hopes differently for her. as undeserving as she is. And I fully agree with justice in our culture. I fully agree with that. 
I fully agree with prison. But the God of the universe has a scandalous, beautiful grace that extends to anybody who will call in the name of Jesus Christ. Even though people would say, you're kidding me. You would let him into your church? What if they're not really, what if they really haven't repented of their sin? What if you start bringing them in and they start teaching their stuff to our kids and we infect our kids with that? What if the other churches look at you and say, you're so soft on that kind of sin. Look at all those kinds of sinners who hang out with you all. The alternative would be for us to believe that she should then rot in hell. And truth is, she should. She should. But so should I. And so should you. And the unmerited favor of God says that my son Jesus will pay the penalty for your sin on the cross. You don't deserve it. You deserve it less than you deserve it. And you don't deserve it at all. But my son Jesus... For everybody. There was this story of this lady. It it says in the Bible that some religious leaders went to a home. They burst through the door and caught her in the very act of adultery. Totally guilty. Like, like, like no, no, no debate. It wasn't like, well... She was with someone who was not her husband. Either she was married to a husband and this guy wasn't her husband or he was married to a woman and she was not his wife or whatever they were doing, they they were... At dawn, he appeared again, Jesus, in temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now there's all kinds of pieces of that story that are... Twisted, like why'd they just grab the lady and not the guy? Right? Why? Why bring her into the house of worship? Like, what were they doing? Spying? There's all kinds of messy pieces to that, but but there's one major piece. If you're able, I'd like you to to sense the scene. She is guilty. She knows she's guilty. Everybody knows she's guilty. They grab her and they drag her into the place of worship where God's people are gathered. How horrifying. How shame-filling. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Some some people say she was probably naked. Uncovered. Or maybe, maybe just a blanket. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Some, some, we have no idea what he wrote. Some say maybe he was just writing the sins of the people holding the stones in the sand. I, I don't know. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, only until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and sin. Leave your life of sin. And here's the question, did she? Like they extended grace to her, but did she? Just like some of us here. People may wonder about you or me. Yeah, you're here in church, but have you really stopped? And so do you really deserve grace? Like, should we really be that kind? Or should we, maybe, maybe we should have her prove that she really loves Jesus in some way. Maybe we, should, maybe we could have her just, like, I don't know, maybe she could just wear an A on her chest for a couple weeks just to show that she's really sorry for what she's done. I mean that sarcastically, by the way. But the church has done that kind of thing in the past. See, God's grace is scandalous. People look at the way Jesus functioned and they said, you've got to be kidding me. If you hang out with people like that, people are going to think you're like people like that. If you hang out with people that do those kinds of partying kinds of things, people are going to assume you're one of those partying kind of people. What you ought to do, you ought to hunker down and stay away from as many sinners as you can. I say that sarcastically. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. For we do not have a high priest, this is from Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, those of us who are forgiven, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The Apostle Paul writes, even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured on me. (laughs) Abundantly, he writes, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our day. It was poured on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, the Apostle Paul writes. I don't think we should ever lose track of the reality that we don't deserve what we have. One of my moments for me, personally, when I wrestle, more so in the past than I do today, is when I serve communion. Because I've heard voices in the past say, you don't deserve to touch those elements and serve other people. You, with your past, do you realize how sinful you are? Yes. But I don't stand here without sin. I, I, I do, because... It's been paid for. I stand in the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The undeserved favor that says, even though you are, I will remake you and I will use you to the glory of my name. You are my child. I have a graciousness that is extravagantly generous. The third point, the generosity 
of grace. Where Christ pours it on us. He doesn't like, it's not like, it's not like a thimble. Okay, here's all you've earned so far. He drives the truck back. Beep, beep, beep. And pours it on us. This undeserved favor. This, this, we as Christ followers are recipients of grace and we, it says, let's, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, in the order that in the coming ages, the ages to come, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. It's like he's saying, look at, it's like he's saying, hey world, you want to know my grace? You want to know how undeserving favor functions? Look at my people. That we are the expression, we are the recipients of God's grace his incomparable riches, that he, he, his wealth of grace, that he says, these are my people, as unworthy as they are, as broken as they are, as sinful as they have been, as wrecked and whacked and, 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 and not quite who I dreamed of them being yet. But they're mine. And I've forgiven them, and I've cleansed them, and I've loved them. Grace came to earth. The word became flesh. And made his dwelling amongst us. He came full of grace and truth. Never compromising truth and full of grace. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Always truthful. Always giving the truth. Always giving grace. Not pouring enough truth to choke the truth down, but to pour enough grace to ch- like truth and grace. Truth and grace. Truth and grace. We are recipients of that. Look in your heart. Because of his grace and mercy, if you have Jesus Christ, you can say, I am, I am forgiven. I have received mercy. I can stand with my head lifted up because of the grace and mercy of God who has cleansed me from all unrighteousness. I am justified. I am made just as if I'd never sinned. I didn't deserve that. You don't deserve that. I have that. Because of his love. Are you ever stunned by the sinfulness that continues in your life? Be just as stunned by the grace of God that gets poured on you. The generosity of grace says that the church is the evidence of God's grace. But also invites us to be the expression of of his grace. The evidence of his grace, look at my church, you'll see how grace works. And the expression of God's grace, that we would be the kind of people that would love people just as they are. That would be generous with the grace of God. But, but pastor, what if they start coming here? I'm not sure if I want to worship with those kinds of people. The world is just so screwed up, really, Pastor, what I want. I just want to hide. I just want to move out of the country, get away from all the evil, all the people that are messed up. I want to build a little enclave. Actually, what I'd like to do, Pastor, is just go to heaven and skip here. But what if the church had a power not so much political power, not so much a legal power, 
but a power of beautiful movement and grace and expression. Philip Yancey writes this. I sometimes think of how, be- how difficult it must have been for Jesus. He was around people who were making all these wrong, selfish choices. Imagine what it's like to be perfect yet to reach out with grace. What a lesson. It's astonishing how he avoided saying, I'd love to get off this planet. He never seemed to be offended by people who seem to offend us. So the church has an opportunity, Yancey writes, to be a better steward. We can expect the nation, we can't expect the nation to operate by Christian principles. No nation has. But we can expect this of the church. Imagine what would happen if we organized ourselves in the neighborhood, in the city, and in the world as a people existing for the sake of the outsider that we are the express evidence of God's grace and that we are the expression of God's grace. Matthew chapter 5 says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy. What if we would put when we function without grace or with lack of love, what if we put that sin, even though there may not be specific categories, but what if we treated our lack of grace and our lack of love towards people with the same kind of hatred as we treat adultery? What if we be appalled at ourselves when we are ungracious or unloving the same way we would be if we were unfaithful. God's grace, it's scandalous. People from the outside won't understand, but it's beautiful and powerful. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's an opportunity for us to address before God again our need for forgiveness and grace and to worship Him well. Maybe take this time and ask God to begin to do the work on our thoughts that are unlike Jesus' thoughts or our doings that are not like Jesus' doings or our words that are not like Jesus' words.